Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick moment before the show and talk about the tragic loss of Chadwick Boseman. It just didn't feel right me doing a theater show and not talking about an actor who had just passed away. While I am a huge Marvel fan and Chadwick will always be our king, I fell in love with his acting before he was a big superhero star. I fell in love with him when I went to see the movie 42 with my family. In that movie, he plays the young Jackie Robinson and the movie shows all the horrible racism the real Jackie had to put up with during that time period. Chadwick Boseman was always thoughtful when auditioning for roles, and he played his roles with his emotions on his sleeve, and I think that's one of the many reasons I fell in love with his acting style so much. Once he officially became King T'Challa for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he understood the significance of the role he was playing. This was a very significant and important movie for the black community, especially young kids. For the first time, young boys and girls of color could finally see themselves on the big screen as a hero, a king, a scientist, a princess, and a female general. This movie was something no one had ever seen before, and Chadwick understood the responsibility he had to honor, especially the children he inspired. And by all accounts, he was just as kind off-screen as he was on-screen. He would donate his time at children's hospitals and was part of many activist projects and groups. And he had just partnered with When We All Vote to get young people to understand the value and importance of being able to vote in the United States. To lose him at only age 43 was a true tragedy, but after we all found out that he was silently battling colon cancer for six years, it just made him that much more strong to me. He was undergoing chemotherapy and surgeries while filming many different movies and going to red carpet premieres, and he was still donating his time at children's hospitals during all of this. So to honor his legacy, I would encourage everyone first to go to whenweallvote.org to register to vote. And even if you think maybe your vote won't make a difference, just go to the website and poke around. You never know. It could change your mind. Also, another very important website that we should all check out is fightcolorectalcancer.org. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths among men and women combined in the United States. So please go to the website and learn more about their research and how to help in the fight against colon cancer. Links to both of these websites will be down below in the show notes section. Chadwick, you will forever be missed. Thank you so much for sharing your talents with us, even though it was only for a short time. You will always be our king. Wakanda forever. From historical locations found on a map to the lesser known areas found maybe even in your own hometown, history leaves shadows that people in the present can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel and I am so glad to be back. For today's episode, I'm going to be discussing the history of theater and why people think theaters across the world may have so much paranormal activity. But before I start, I wanted to thank everyone so much for checking in on me during these crazy fires in my state. I am safe. No fire started near enough to me that I had to evacuate, but I did have my stuff packed up just in case. But now I don't want to jinx myself. I'm going to knock on wood after I say this, but I think I'm good. Before I get any further, I just wanted to to say what I use my Patreon money for. I don't think I ever said it. I might have in a other episode, but I forget. So the only thing I spend any of the Patreon money on is specifically for the show. So for instance, I use the money I get to pay for my monthly podcast host. I'll use it to pay for all the sound effects and music I use on the show I have to pay for. And also the website, I have to pay a yearly fee for the website handle. And eventually... 
I would like to have merchandise for sale for the show. But for now, I just have stickers that I'm sending out for my Patreons. That's as far as I've got with the whole merchandise thing. But don't worry, I'm going to continue to do this anyway because I love this. It's my fun hobby and whether I get paid or not, but a few bucks here and there does really help me out. So thank you all so much to my Patreons. With that being said, I got two new Patreons and I am so excited. Thank you guys so much, but I'm trying to come up with a better name than calling you my Patreons. I was trying to think of some kind of a group name, like maybe the Boo Scouts, but I think that name is already taken and it's probably kind of lame. So my Patreons, if you guys want to come up with a clever name that I we could all call each other, you guys should help me out with that. But anyways, the whole reason I bring this up is because I would like to thank and welcome Janine and Katie. Thank you guys so much for becoming my Patreons. Welcome to the Mothman tier group, you guys. Thank you guys so much for supporting my show. It really helps me out and it means a lot to me that people actually have faith in me, which blows my mind. I will be sending you your thank you cards and stickers out soon if I have not already. So again, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Okay, guys, I'm super excited about this episode. It was a lot of work. I had a million different angles to do this research on, but I think it is all worth it. I found out so much cool information and it took me down so many rabbit holes, but I think you will have fun during this episode. So with that being said, all right, let's raise that curtain, set the house lights, because we are going to the theater. After, of course, our monsters moment. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. If you have seen the recent article on charlottestories.com about flying dinosaur sightings being on the rise in North Carolina, then you will know about today's monstrous moment, and that is the pterodactyl. While dinosaurs are definitely extinct, it does not count for all the hundreds of eyewitness accounts of people seeing flying dinosaurs all over the United States for hundreds of years. And the descriptions of these flying beasts look exactly what you would think. Big leathery wings, no feathers, a knob-like cone on the top of his head with a diamond-shaped bulb at the end of a very long tail. When I saw this article, I knew that I was going to talk about this for my next Monsters moment. In an article that came out in charlottestories.com on August 9th, 2020, written by Scott Jensen, he talks about a cryptozoologist named Jonathan Whitcomb, and that Whitcomb went into depth about the uptick in pterodactyl sightings in North Carolina. A woman named Christina Lee saw the creature flying over her back in January. According to the article, she saw the creature again while she was on her way to work just a few weeks ago. And it's not like this woman just mistook a big giant flying bird for a flying dinosaur. She was going to school to become a veterinarian tech, so she should know her animals. Also, her family has a history of run-ins with seeing these strange flying dinosaurs. Her mother and uncle both swear they saw one flying over their house while they were playing in the front yard when they were young. There is a community of cryptozoologists that study and go out looking for strange things that people see all over the country. The only problem is everyone who believes in cryptids seem to have a different opinion. Some people believe that many cryptid sightings have connections with the paranormal. 
Others think that ghosts are not real at all, but things like Bigfoot and Nessie can be. And some even think cryptid sightings come from aliens that have just come to our planet or are hiding on our planet. While still others think that we are witnessing a wrinkle in time and space into another dimension. And the other dimension is just leaking through into our own reality for a brief moment until everything snaps back in place to our normal reality. Personally, I like that one for the explanation over some of the other ones. Many scientists are beginning to believe that there are other dimensions out there and they're slowly being able to scientifically prove that, so maybe that's all that's going on. While the question of what cryptids are and if they even exist will forever be up for debate, there will still be the other question of what the heck are these people seeing? There are areas in the United States that seem to have what some people call a heightened area of strangeness. To clarify, it's basically areas on the U.S. map that have the most calls of reported sightings of strange occurrences. The Appalachian Mountains have been a hot spot for strange activity for hundreds of years. From water witches to cave-dwelling goblins to tommyknockers, Bigfoot, UFOs, gray aliens, flying dinosaurs are just part of some of the crazy stories around that area. And sometimes during all of these crazy areas of strangeness, there is also an uptick in paranormal activity, like poltergeist activity that happened during the same time as a strange cryptid sighting. While I could never find a definitive answer as to what the flying dinosaurs exactly are or where they might come from, seeing a flying pterodactyl in the area would not actually surprise me. It is 2020 after all, but now I want to know what do you guys think? Do you think it truly is just other dimensions leaking through or maybe even the past coming through to us? Are you on the everything's connected camp or are you on the there's no way ghosts exist but that could exist? I want to know. We should talk about this in our little group. I'm going to make a little discussion and we can talk about it together. Either way, for me, seeing a pterodactyl in person would definitely be something I'd want under my belt for a monstrous moment. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more. I am so excited for this episode. For those of you who don't know, this about me is I love to act. As a kid, I was in 10 plays and I was the lead role in many of them. And I left high school and I went on to get an agent in the city and I even did a lot of auditioning for some roles for a while. While the acting thing never did work out for me, I learned a lot about the history and lore of the theater. The first thing that I learned is that the stage acting is very different from TV acting and TV acting is completely different than acting in a movie. Movie sets normally have many locations that they film and they shoot many scenes on and then they put them all together for the movie. TV sets are not used for big rehearsals that last all day for months, but theater buildings hold months worth of rehearsals before the production even starts. While yes, some old TV and movie sets are reportedly very haunted, theaters have a much different energy to them. The idea of a theater is an ancient one. TV and movies are relatively new. The energy theaters hold around the world are incredible, and to understand this, we have to talk about the history of the theater. And for that, we have to go back in time to the ancient Greeks.
One of the oldest forms of entertainment is the theater. The ancient Greeks are credited with being the first civilization to perform plays. Theater comes from the Greek word theatron, which means seeing place. The very first actor was named Thespis, which led to the term thespians used today as another word for actors. The first performances were part of the Greek festival to honor Dionysus, the god of wine harvest, winemaking, and fertility. What an interesting combination. In time, plays became a large part of Greek culture. The Greeks built large amphitheaters, usually cutting into hillsides, and the seats were tiered in a semicircle. The largest theater could seat over 10,000 people. As a side note, the ancient Greeks also invented puppetry. Greek plays can be categorized as either a tragedy or a comedy. Tragedies were serious plays that taught a moral lesson. Usually a mythical hero would meet his doom due to a character flaw such as pride. Comedies told stories of everyday life and made fun of local politicians and other well-known Greek citizens. The actors wore costumes and masks that were large enough so people in the back seats could see them. The masks had large expressions painted on them and a large mouth hole so the actors could project their voices. Larger frowns were common for tragedies and, of course, large grins for comedies. This is where we get what is today the famous masks that are seen at, I believe, every theater usually has them above or somewhere in the artwork around the stage. It would be the happy mask and then the sad mask. These are usually seen with ribbons around them. So that is where that logo comes from. You can trace that all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Now, of course, during this time period, men could only act in plays and they would dress and drag as women for the female characters. To help the audience better understand the story, a chorus, which was a group of actors, would comment on the action. They also used instruments like a lyre or a flute, and they would use various objects to add sound effects. The ancient Romans continued the tradition of Greek theater. The Colosseum in Rome is an example of their style of theaters. These theaters were more like arenas and offered several types of entertainment. One type that was popular was bloody and brutal. The Romans had wild exotic animals fight each other, or an animal was put up against a huntsman or a criminal. Chariot races were another well-liked event. Races were held in a special arena called a circus. The main attraction, however, was the gladiator fights. These men were most often slaves or prisoners. If you performed well enough in the games, you could become rich. The games were sponsored by the wealthy who were trying to gain popularity with the citizens. Basically a, I'll put on all these games for you if you like me token. This is one of the ways Julius Caesar gained his popularity because he put on large public games as well as large theater productions. The ancient Romans also enjoyed theater. They copied the Greeks' plays, and in fact, most of the actors were Greek. The Romans enjoyed the comedies, and more wealthy people would sponsor plays in order to gain popularity, just as they would have done for the games. The comedies were the most popular amongst the Romans, rather than the tragedies. Theater just about died out during the medieval times, but luckily for us, it started back up again in the 10th century Britain as religious plays were performed in churches and eventually outside. The reason churches started to do plays is because at this time, church services were only given in Latin, so plays were a way to teach people who could not read the Bible the Christian stories. In medieval France, puppet shows were used by the Catholic Church to tell Bible stories and also to tell about lives of saints and celebrate Christian holidays. The Renaissance period lasted from the 14th to the 17th century. 
This was a time of rebirth for education, science, and art because so much of this was lost during the medieval or dark ages. In the 16th century, professional theater began in Italy. The plays were performed outdoors in piazzas on raised platforms. The performances were free for anyone to attend. The actors wore masks and improvised the stories. Eventually, this type of play spread across Europe and was very popular into the 17th century. The oldest French professional theater company made its debut in 1680. The next big era of theater for England was Elizabethan theater from 1558 to 1603. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, many historians consider this time to be the golden age in English history since England was at peace, its economy was doing well, and the arts grew. Plays were performed in wooden playhouses. The first theater to open was the Red Lion Theater in 1567. Several more permanent theaters opened up in London, including the Curtain Theater in 1577 and the Globe Theater in 1599. During this time, William Shakespeare came onto the scene and became the most famous playwright of the age. His most popular genres included the tragedy, the comedy, and the history play. While theater was developing over in Europe, kabuki was becoming popular in Japan. Originally, women performed both male and female roles, but they were banned from performing in 1629. Kabuki is a combination of dance and drama. All male casts perform using mime and dance along with music. The stage setup includes trapdoors, a section that rotated, and a footbridge that went out into the audience. Kabuki is still performed today with the traditional male cast. Moving back over to England. So, after the English Civil War broke out, ending with Puritan rule, the Puritans banned theater altogether in 1642. Previously, theater had been supported by Elizabeth I, James I, and Charles I, so most of the actors were supportive of the royalists during the Civil War. When their side was defeated, many of them were forced to flee or switch their occupations. Luckily for us, theater still survived during this time period because of the noble families began holding their own productions in their homes. Short dramas were performed at fairs and small towns on holidays, leading to the restoration stage of theater from 1660 to 1714. Theater groups performed skits all across the country to keep theater alive. England's public schools began to run dramas to teach their students about Latin and Greek. Theaters reopened in 1660 when King Charles assumed the throne. Comedies were the most popular and King Charles even allowed some women to perform. Fast forward a couple of centuries and take one hop over the pond and we've entered the era of American vaudeville. A vaudeville performance was made up of dozens of acts lasting for hours. There were comedians, singers, ventriloquists, dancers, magicians, musicians, plate spinners, acrobats, animal trainers, and actors performing short plays. There was a blend of cultures and lifestyles. You could find vaudeville performances on stages ranging from small towns to the Palace Theater in New York City. Vaudeville was a popular form of entertainment during the 18 and 1900s. The height of its popularity was from the 1880s into the 1920s. The invention of radio began to see the decline of vaudeville. Popular stage performers began to switch from stage to performing for radio stations. Fewer people attended live performances, forcing theaters to begin to show silent movies instead of live theater. Even though movies and later TV led to pretty much the end of vaudeville, almost every actor in the early movie industry developed their skills through performing in vaudeville acts. James Cagney, a famous actor, once said, Everything I know, I learned in vaudeville. Today, shows such as Saturday Night Live continue the traditions of vaudeville, and theater now ranges from big-budget stage productions on Broadway or London's West End to smaller school performances. Broadway has been growing in popularity again. Not only can we enjoy soundtracks from all these stage productions on our cell phones, but thanks to TV, we can all enjoy productions from the seat of our own homes. 
PBS, for instance, has been known to stream productions like Phantom of the Opera and The King and I, along with recently Disney Plus, had Hamilton. And yes, I love Hamilton. If you haven't watched it yet, you definitely should. I have been listening to the soundtrack on repeat for months. While theater has had its ups and downs, one thing has remained constant, superstition and stories of ghosts that haunt the theaters all over the world. And also a curse from a play that has actors refusing to say the title of the play within the theater. So imagine that you are standing completely alone on a stage. Everything is dark around you. All the seats are facing towards you. But did you just hear something from behind the curtain or maybe see a shadow dart from left to right in the corner of your eye? If you have ever been in a theater and had this happen to you, you're not alone. It is time to talk about the lore and ghostly activity of theaters. something a little different with this episode. There are so many haunted theaters that I could do hundreds of episodes on, and I will do many of them. But first, I wanted to take a deeper dive into some of the crazy lore surrounding the theater. For this part of the episode, I want you to think of theater as more of an entity of sorts, instead of just a single building that hosts plays inside it. As you learned in the history portion, theater has lasted plagues, banning of theater altogether, wars, and hostile country takeovers. Theater lived on because humans loved to see a story play out in front of their eyes. Today, Today, it might be on our TVs at home while you are on a Netflix binge, but remember, for thousands of years, we had no TV, no movie theaters, no cell phones, no YouTube, and sadly, no TikTok for all you TikTok users. If humans wanted to see any type of storytelling at all, they just had the theater. It brought in so much energy to that specific thing that many think the energy manifested into spirits of the theater. Ghosts are only part of the equation. Do you remember in the last episode, Monstrous Moments, when I talked about a long list of strange superstitions that minors have? Well, theater actors are no different. They have many superstitions ranging from just being jinxed to you are the next to die. Many of these superstitions are very old, but if you're not an actor, it might surprise you that many people who act in theater productions today still take these very seriously. Before I begin on these theater superstitions, I just want to point out that everyone has a different opinion about them. Some people believe them, some people don't. A lot of people take them super seriously while others laugh. And still, some have different counter-curse actions, and everyone has a little bit different of a saying, but they basically mean the same things. Some of the superstitions I was told growing up, I was reading on different um, websites to try to find information about them, and they were told slightly different. So it's kind of like the urban legend thing. Everyone knows it, but it changes, and it varies from state to state, country to country, and just who is the theater managers. With that being said, it is time to get into some of the crazy superstitions that actors follow. Starting out with the saying, break a leg. Most of us has heard someone say this at least once to someone else who is about to go on stage. But why do we say this? Well, it could be because of old theater folklore, including mischief-making spirits of the stage who use their magic to do the exact opposite of the wish giver. So instead of saying good luck, 
you say break a leg out of hope that the spirits of the stage will want to make the opposite happen to you. Hopefully they help the actor not only not break his leg, but have a very good night on the stage. Another old superstition is to never give a bouquet of flowers to an actor before the performance. Again, this is anticipating the actor will have a good night and then you curse them into having a bad one. On the other hand, it is considered good luck to give a director a bouquet of flowers on the last night of the performance. At first, you might go, okay, what's so strange about that? Well, the old tradition says that the flowers are supposed to be stolen from a graveyard and then given to the director on the last night. It means the death of the play. If you give them flowers from a graveyard on the last night, it is supposed to bring the director good luck for their next project. Whistling backstage is considered a great way to jinx the play and yourself. While today it is just considered really bad luck to even do such a thing, this one had less to do about spirits back in the day and it had more to do with practicality. Accidents are known to happen on stage and in the old days, men would have to pull on ropes to raise and lower very heavy stage backdrops and props. Today, we use computers and hydraulic systems, but back in the day, men would have to whistle at each other across the catwalks above to be in unison for scene changes. If an actor was to whistle backstage and the stagehands thought it was time to drop a set, they could easily do it too early and crush the actor down below. Making whistling altogether taboo backstage was a great way to not get people killed and the superstition of not whistling backstage has still stuck to this day. Any open flame on a stage is a risk. Many Shakespearean theaters had been burned down due to fires sparked by onstage use of flames. But there is a much older superstition to not burn exactly three candles on stage. You can burn fewer or more, but you should never burn just three. The superstition goes that if you do this, the person who stands nearest to the shortest candle will be the first in the group to die. No one really knows why or where this came from, but people still follow it today. If you leave the theater, there will almost always be a light left on in the middle of the stage. This is called the ghost light. It is really bad luck to turn it off. So right now with COVID-19, all the Broadway theaters across the world should have one single light left on. The ghost light is a single light bulb that is left on on the stage after everyone leaves for the night. And trust me, it is great to have this light on because just in case you forgot something and have to go back into a dark theater, you won't trip or fall on all the props left scattered around. But also according to lore, the light is actually left on to help keep the spirits of the theater calm, give them a place to shine while no one is looking, and it is also also used to ward off evil spirits. Another strange superstition is that it is considered bad luck to bring a peacock feather on the stage. A peacock feather pattern looks like the evil eye. And I have to talk about the evil eye, so bear with me for a moment as we take a visit to the rabbit hole. I have heard the term evil eye before, but I never really looked into it until now, and boy am I glad I did. The evil eye today is famous for being on jewelry. If you don't know what it looks like, look down into the show notes really quick and I will put the emoji of the evil eye down below because yes, it is on my iPhone and it has an evil eye emoji. Something I didn't know until I typed in evil eye and I saw it popped up. Anyway, if you don't have time to look it up online or on your phone, I will describe it for you. It's a dark blue circle or oval shape with a light blue eye with a black pupil. It is now famous for being on necklaces and bracelets and people even get it tattooed on their bodies. It is considered the evil eye charm. And if you were thinking why on earth would someone keep something called the evil eye on their person, it turns out that according to folklore, having the evil eye charm on you will counteract the real evil 
evil eye and will keep you protected, hence the name evil eye charm. The evil eye curse is completely different, and it also can be called the malevolent gaze. Today, we call it the stank eye. Have you ever heard someone say, they were giving you the stank eye? Well, that actually means the evil eye or the malevolent gaze. The evil eye shows up in many different cultures and by different names, but they all have the same worry, that someone's envy could bring harm to another's good fortune just by someone's envious or malicious glare. The idea is that when you have the feeling of jealous rage, it brings in a dark evil energy into your body and you expel it to that person you are glaring at. In some versions of folklore, this can even be done when the person doing the glaring is not truly evil. It could have just been a passing thought, but because you had that rush of jealous anger, you became an unwilling participant. The evil just channels through the person doing the glaring and then pushes the energy to the person being glared at. The fear of the evil eye is ancient. The oldest evil eye amulet ever found was from 3300 BC and the blue evil eye trinket closer to the one that we know today was used by the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, and Greeks, Romans, and Ottomans. The evil eye is also referred to in pagan mythology as well as many holy scriptures. The Bible even references the evil eye in Matthew 6.23 and it says, quote, By if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, end quote. Muslims are known to recite texts from the Quran to protect themselves from things like the evil eye. And people all over the world are known to try different counter curses to avoid the evil eye's gaze. Okay, now we are back up from that rabbit hole. Thank you for hanging with me. I thought it was kind of cool. So now that we know the information about the evil eye, you can now understand why anything that even resembled it might not be allowed on stage. Remember that people back in ancient and medieval times were very superstitious. So directors didn't want to offend anyone by bringing something on stage that resembled the evil eye. While you are avoiding bringing those peacock feathers onto stage, keep an eye out for the ghost of Thespis. Remember, Thespis was believed to be the very first actor to play an actual role on stage in ancient Greece. Considered the first man of the theater, it is said that his ghost still comes and goes to watch plays all over the world. He is even known to be quite the trickster. When things get moved around on set or when things go wrong, they often blame it on Thespis. There is an old story of a ghost that haunts the Belasco Theater. Belasco Theater is located at 111 West 44th Street in New York City. It is believed to be haunted by its namesake, David Belasco. People believe that he still haunts the theater, but some think that it might just be Thespis who's messing with people and still watching over plays that come and go inside. For our last and biggest superstition to follow in a theater is to never say, and fair warning if you are in a theater right now listening to this, three, two, one, Macbeth. Macbeth is referred to as the Scottish play by actors because they don't want to say the actual name of the play, especially in the theater. It is okay to refer to Macbeth like the character Macbeth during rehearsals or the actual play, but to utter the word Macbeth, meaning the title of the play, will make all the actors around you shiver with fear. The 
Scottish play was created by William Shakespeare in 1603. Shakespeare wrote the play to pay homage to King James I. King James I was Shakespeare's patron, and he wanted to create a play that had elements in it to please the king. However, while Shakespeare went all out on making the play authentic, King James thought it was a little bit too grotesque and violent, and he ended up banning the play for a while. The play has several elements in it that most believe to be real. King James I was Mary, Queen of Scots' son. And I've talked about her before in a few episodes, and especially in the Edinburgh Castle episode. So to refresh your memory, Mary became Queen of Scots in 1542 at only six days old. Mary had a hard time keeping her throne, and eventually she was accused of treason to overthrow her cousin, Queen Elizabeth of England. She was sentenced to death by beheading. Her beheading was anything but clean. It was a botched beheading, and it took the executioner between three to four swings of the axe to finally cut the queen's head off. Many historians believe that this caused her son, who later became King James I of England, to have a very strange fascination with death and dark magic. King James was famous for conducting many witch hunts. He was also convinced that witches were out to get him, and that they were the cause of a bad storm that happened on his trip from Scotland to Denmark with his new wife, Anne. When he got back to shore, he demanded a witch hunt in the coastal town of North North Berwick to find out the witches responsible for the storm that almost killed him and his new wife. King James I was also famous for writing a book called Demonology. In this book, King James himself made it very clear that he not only believed in witches and demons, but that he thought the best thing to do about them was to eradicate them and save the kingdom from their spells. His book was used for many years by churches across England and Scotland. It was thought to be a how-to, identify witches and how to get rid of them type of book. King James believed that witches only worked for the devil himself. Mostly women were accused of witchcraft, but sometimes men would be accused as well. This book also talks about a familiar. He described a familiar as being a creature, normally a black cat, that was made by the devil and given to the witch so that the familiar could do the witch's bidding. The book also talked of witch marks being left-handed and beware people with red hair. Of course, today, thanks to modern science, we know that this is not true, and he was probably just afraid of strong women who were kind enough to make potions to help make people feel better. And because you can't see, I'm doing a massive eye roll right now. Because King James I was so superstitious, Shakespeare decided to make a short but bloody tragedy play. And here is where you might start to see right out of the gate, this play is dark and twisted. I have not seen this play in person, but I have seen the black and white. I can't remember when it came out, but there was a black and white movie version of this that I had to watch in high school English class. And let me just tell you, this is not my kind of storytelling. Definitely not my cup of tea, if you will. But to understand the curse, you have to understand the play. And for that, I will give you a quick summary of the play. When the play begins, you see three witches. And remember, these witches in this play are the medieval-style witches. So during this time, witches were portrayed as ugly, cackling, evil, and really gross with, like, big boils on their face. These three witches tell Macbeth, in a very Shakespearean-style way, that Macbeth, a Scottish nobleman, will become king. Macbeth is, of course, really happy about this prediction, and when his wife hears of it, she is also thrilled. But then they realize that to make this come true, they will have to kill off a lot of people. This is a true tragedy-style play, and it is really dark and over-the-top. Shakespeare loved dramatic and authentic storytelling. Not only does this play show lots of people dying in really bloody deaths, but it also has Macbeth's wife committing suicide offstage due to her being driven mad by guilt because she and her husband had murdered King Duncan, who was at their house as a guest. 
As the play goes on, she begins to sleepwalk, wash her hands compulsively to get the blood off, as she keeps saying, and then she commits suicide offstage. And by offstage, I mean she kind of just runs off the stage and you hear her scream. I believe it is implied that she jumped off the castle. After this play was shown to King James I, legend has it that he absolutely hated it. He thought the witch spells were too real and the deaths were so bloody that he banned it for a while. The witches in the play are referred to as the Weird Sisters. The Weird Sisters recite a few spells that many people think were actually real spells during the time. They think this because Shakespeare was really into authenticity of his plays and the legend has it that he actually went to a real witch coven to study their practices and then he brought much of what he saw, including real spell work, into the play. You might already know some of the words to this famous spell. It is used today on much of the Halloween merchandise and even Harry Potter turned it into a song in the third movie. And and for those of you who are Potter nerds like me, you will also remember that the band named the Weird Sisters was a popular boy band on the WWN or the Wizarding Wireless Network, and they also performed at the Yule Ball during Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. J.K. Rowling got this name of the band, the Weird Sisters, from the actual Weird Sisters from the play Macbeth. And when you remember that when Macbeth was originally made, only men could play female roles, it actually makes sense to why it's a boy band called the Weird Sisters. The most famous parts of a much longer version sound like this. Round and round the cauldron go, in the poison entrails throw. Toe that under cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one. Swelter venom sleeping gut, boil thou first, I the charmed pot. Double, double, toil and treble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> And it is supposed to sound that over the top and that dramatic. Ever since that first night of the play, people think this play is cursed. According to legend, during the lead up to the first performance, word got out about the witches in the play using real incantations. So this angered a coven of witches who cursed the play for dare using their sacred spells. On the very first night of the play, the actor who was set to play Lady Macbeth got sick and died the day before the opening night, and this forced Shakespeare himself to quickly take on the role of Lady Macbeth. Even though King James I hated the play, the play ended up living throughout history and eventually it became more of a mainstream play again. The next bad accident to happen to the Macbeth play was that one of the actors accidentally picked up a real dagger and not the fake ones when he went to murder King Duncan on stage. He accidentally stabbed the actor playing him and he died in front of a live audience. While these are not documented by proof, it was still told to this day by theater folklorists. But the next event is documented and it actually happened. How about Macbeth causing a full-on riot? Because that happened in 1849 in New York. There was a division during that time between the upper-class New Yorkers who had favored the British and the working class who at the time were mostly made up of Irish immigrants who were not happy with the British at the time. During this time, an American actor named Edwin Forrest was championed as being the actor of choice for the hardworking immigrants, and an English actor named William Charles McCready was thought of to be more superior than the American actor. You see, William fit in with the elite crowd, and Forrest just didn't. The rivalry between them began when McCready got the part as Macbeth for the Scottish play's production held at the Astor Opera House in Manhattan. The working class were outraged that he got the part over their favorite actor. When he appeared on stage for opening night on March 7, 1849, 
he was greeted with an angry crowd of working class who had bought many seats in the theater. They booed, hissed, and pelted McCready with rotten eggs and vegetables. The show was immediately stopped, and the next day McCready announced that he would be leaving America. However, his upper-class fans convinced him to stay and perform again, but this time they bought out the entire theater so that no one else could come and watch. This, in turn, really pissed off the working class who gathered outside the opera house on the rescheduled date of May 10th. The people inside the opera house began to board up the windows as a crowd of 10,000 angry working-class New Yorkers gathered outside. The New York authorities called in their special 7th Regiment, basically volunteers comprised of the upper class, to come and help keep the crowd away from the opera house. By the time the play was supposed to start, all hell broke loose. The cops could not keep the crowd back, and the crowd began to break windows of the opera house, and some even tried to set the building on fire, but thankfully that didn't work. And then, the street gangs of New York got involved and began to do running assaults on the police, hitting them with rocks, bottles, and massive stones. Someone thought it was a great idea to set off a warning shot, and then many officers and volunteers ended up shooting into the crowd, and by the end, 20 to 30 rioters were killed, and over 200 total were wounded, all because someone got the role of Macbeth over someone else. Today, this time in history is known as the Shakespeare Riot. Other notable things have happened to actors of the Scottish play. For instance, in 1926, actress Sybil Thorndike was almost strangled to death by an actor from the show, who went a little overzealous on a scene. In 1948, Diana Wineyard was playing Lady Macbeth when she accidentally fell off the stage during the sleepwalk scene. That was a 15-foot drop off the stage, and she did sustain some injuries. During the week run of the Scottish play in 1934, a theater company went through four different Macbeths. The first got laryngitis, the next got the flu, and the other actor was fired, leaving John LaRue to play Macbeth to finish out the show. Talk about weird. If you are a stage actor, then you know it's a huge deal to not have the main person be able to perform, but when you start to go that far down the list of understudies, that's just crazy. In 1937, Lawrence Oliver, Judith Anderson production of the Scottish play brought the most bad luck to any Macbeth production. A few days before opening night, Lillian Baileys, who was the founder of Old Vic, died. Old Vic is the name of a nonprofit production theater in Lamberth, London, England. When her theater began to run the Scottish play, bad luck came in full force. First, a few days before opening night, Lillian's favorite dog passed away. The next day, she died mysteriously. Then, the director of the play barely escaped a near-fatal car accident. And while performing, the actor Oliver almost was crushed by a 25-pound stage weight that mysteriously came loose and fell from the catwalks above the stage. It missed him only by inches. A 1947 production of Macbeth had two cast members suddenly die and the costume designer committed suicide. And this is just the major things that have happened. There is a much longer list of strange stage accidents, injuries, fires, and people being mugged right outside the theater that happened to many people who were in the play. The play is a risky one to be a part of, and some theaters have even had bad ticket sales, and they blamed it on the curse. Now, I don't know if someone said the name of the play before all these things happened, or if the play itself is just cursed, but the idea is that if you say the word Macbeth inside any theater, whether the play is Macbeth or not, you will curse yourself and the production. But don't panic just yet, because there is a way you can undo this curse. If you slip up and say the name Macbeth, 
you must immediately walk outside the theater, spin around three times, spit over your left shoulder, and say a cuss word, and then knock on the theater door to be let back in. Another version of the counter curse is to go outside, spin around three times, spit, and recite a line of any other Shakespearean play. Whether you believe in curses or not, this is one of the oldest and most believed and most famous curses in the world. I would not take my chances with this one. But hey, what do I know? It could all just be a bunch of hocus pocus. <laughs> Now that I have told you how theater is full of superstitions, theaters around the world are also believed to be the host of several ghosts. Many mediums think that theaters has the perfect energy for ghosts to stick around for a long time. Some of these ghosts died tragically inside the building itself, while other ghosts seem to be wandering spirits that just happen to wander on down the road to watch a play or two and maybe mess with some things on stage. And some think the dark backstage area is the perfect place for darker entities to hide out and wreak havoc on the stage hands. To be a good actor, you have to feel the emotion of the character while you act. Because of this, most actors are more on the sensitive side of things and many are empathic in nature. I know I am, but I think this is a great combination for ghosts to show themselves. So with that being said, it's time to discuss one extremely haunted location on Broadway that has Broadway's most active ghost inside. While there are many ghost stories on Broadway, perhaps one of the most active ghosts can be found in the New Amsterdam Theater. The New Amsterdam Theater is located on Broadway in New York City, and it is now owned by the Disney Company. They ended up purchasing the theater back in the mid-90s. At this time, Disney was already an entertainment company in the theme parks, but it was beginning to struggle. Having a horrible run at the box office in the 80s, they almost had to file for bankruptcy. Luckily for us Disney fans, after scrambling to hire new talent, they were able to save the company with what was now known as the Disney Renaissance period in the 90s. Fresh with the money from their new box office hits, they decided that they wanted to bring something new to the company altogether by bringing one of their movies to the stage. They were able to put together a Broadway-style play of Beauty and the Beast, and that got people's heads turning in the direction of Disney possibly becoming a competitor on Broadway. But when Disney wanted to purchase an old rundown theater near Times Square, many people doubted that Disney would stand a chance on Broadway, let alone be able to pull off fixing up the horridly decrepit theater. But when the Mouse House opened with the box office smash hit The Lion King on Broadway in 1997, it became the biggest Broadway show of the decade. Everyone was talking about it, everyone wanted to see it, and it became Broadway's first ever $1 billion show. The musical went on to win six Tony Awards, including Best Musical. It later went on a world tour, and millions of people all over the world have enjoyed seeing it. And this is not a long-running ad for Disney, I swear. Even though, yes, I do love all things Disney, I'm bringing this up because before Disney purchased the new Amsterdam Amsterdam Theater, it was a complete mess. The new Amsterdam Theater is over 113 years old. It opened on October 26, 1903. It had several successful runs until the Great Depression began its five-decade decline. It was left empty for decades, and by the time Disney bought it, the ceiling had collapsed due to rain damage. Seats had been torn out and slashed. The boxes on either side of the stage had completely collapsed. The old grand paint was peeling off the walls, and the basement was full of stagnant water. The other problem was that mushrooms the size of dinner 
dinner plates were seen growing all throughout the theater. The lobby once had marble sculptures representing Shakespearean plays, and they were all vandalized beyond recognition. It took Disney's Imagineers to come in to try to fix up the mess. By the end, it took over 400 expert engineers, painters, plasters, and the theater technicians to completely restore the theater. They kept its historical elements as well as added some Disney magic. Once they restored the theater and began to run The Lion King, something else began to stir backstage. The theater's resident ghost named Olive. before, theaters and ghosts just go together like peanut butter and jelly, and even the theater's website talks about Olive as fact. Olive's story is a really sad one. Olive was a young chorus girl in the 1915 Ziegfeld Folly. This was a famous play that lasted for 14 years at the New Amsterdam Theater, and it was one of the must-see shows of the time. Olive wanted to be more than just a chorus girl, though, so she went off to Hollywood to pursue her acting dreams. Olive was able to land a few roles in some silent movies before marrying Jack Pickford, the brother of the superstar Mary Pickford. While she and Jack went on a trip to Paris in 1920, Jack told her that he had syphilis and that she also likely had it as well. It's not known exactly what happened next, but Olive died two days later due to mercury poisoning. Reports of the day said that she accidentally swallowed a whole blue pill bottle of Jack's medicine, mercury bicolide. But it just doesn't make sense to me, like, how did you accidentally take that much medication? So there are some theories out there. Many think that she either committed suicide because Jack basically came out and told her that he'd been cheating on her, or that she was poisoned by him to keep her mouth shut about a possible affair. Either way, Olive passed away and her body was brought back to New York for burial. Following her death is when strange things started happening at the theater. Workers began to say that they had seen Olive on the backstage walking around. She made many more appearances before the theater closed down and remained abandoned. But it seems that when Disney brought the theater back to life and began renovations, Olive Ghosts also came back in full force. First, the construction workers started to complain of a strange woman holding a blue pill bottle wandering around the closed construction site. Then when they began rehearsals on the Lion King production, there were more sightings of a young woman wearing a sash and carrying a blue pill bottle wandering around backstage by actors and cast members. There is a story about a man named Damon Allen Dola and he said that he was touring the theater and when he went to check out the new office space that they made above the theater. Back in the early days of the theater, this space was used as a stage above the main stage. This is where Olive would have performed her numbers. After he looked around the new office space, he left and knew no one was inside the room. As he passed underneath it, he began to hear distinct tap dancing above him. He ran back upstairs to check who was inside and when he opened the door, no one was there. Olive is also known to whisper something in people's ears. It is in a mumbled sort of whispery voice, so not very many people can make it out. But it has been reported on several occasions. A night watchman quit immediately after he said he witnessed a young woman cross the stage and disappear through a solid wall. A pair of disembodied feet have also been seen climbing the staircase up to the old roof stage area. Since The Lion King, the theater has had many other Broadway hits like Mary Poppins and now the theater hosts its hit Broadway musical Aladdin. During the previews of Aladdin, 
Aladdin, a female replacement conductor, said that she was backstage getting ready for the show. She was nervous and decided to talk to Olive. She knew about Olive because she had been there at the theater before during a performance of Mary Poppins and worked on that show. According to a Playbill article about her experience with Olive, she said to a completely empty dressing room, Well, Olive, I'm back again and I'm a little nervous. I just wanted to reintroduce myself again and ask if you could please give me some good luck. Then she said, I wonder what the Foley girls would have thought of a female conductor. She claimed that right after she said this, Four of the big round lights around her mirror in her dressing room flickered and then stopped. She took this as a little wink from Olive, saying she approved. Olive has even made appearances during the performances. Once during the show of Aladdin in 2014, a person from the audience came up to an usher in the middle of the beginning of the scene and asked for a booster seat for her child. And this is something you should do before the play. It's really bad theater etiquette to ever get up during a scene unless it's an emergency. An usher will not help you until intermission, and this is exactly what happened. He told her that she would have to wait until intermission so he could get her a booster seat. Once intermission had started, the usher came back over to see if the woman still needed a booster seat, only to find that the kid was already in one. When the usher asked how she got one, the woman said that lady standing in the back of the theater gave us one. She pointed over her shoulder and there was no one there. The usher was dumbfounded. They never have an usher standing where she pointed, and when he went to ask the staff about it, they were just as confused as he was. Many think it was Olive that wanted to help, even if it was during the show. Overall, Olive seems to be mostly a kind and helpful spirit, though very active. The Disney company has embraced Olive and tried to make her feel more comfortable. Many of the staff said that she just likes to play little harmless pranks on people, and she never performs on cue. People have reported feeling cold spots, hearing disembodied voices, flickering of lights, opening and closing of doors, and floating objects have been seen by many crew members. A strange colored mist has been seen on stage many times, and orbs love to show up in photos, and props are moved around constantly. It seems the best time to see Olive is when you're not looking for her. Olive has quite a fan base as well. She is known as Broadway's most active ghost, and people have been caught trying to hide after a show in hopes of getting locked into the theater so that they can catch a glimpse of Olive. The theater now has to do a sweep after every show to make sure everyone is out. They get so many questions about Olive that the vice president of operations at Disney Theatrical Company has placed the real photo of Olive Thomas at every entrance door to the theater, so that way workers and guests can greet her and say goodbye as they arrive and leave the theater. This is a great way to show respect to someone who just loves to hang around. While I am sad that Olive seems to be clinging to her blue pill bottle even in the afterlife, I hope she is at least happy that the theater has new life again, and maybe that's why she decided to stay so long. like this episode where we discuss the lore and hauntings of theater. I know I had so much fun figuring out all this cool information. I hope you guys had fun too. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Historically Haunted. Join the Facebook group page at Historically Haunted as well. And I will see you guys again soon. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Bye guys. 
Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that one in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the information about dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show. Thank you.